quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I always tell everybody that cash flow will get you out of a job, but equity will keep you there. And it goes straight dovetail into the question of should I buy for cash flow or should I buy for appreciation? And what I have found is when people ask that question or even really entertain that conversation seriously at all, they don't know what to talk about. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Bill Ham. Bill is a returning guest on the Best Ever Show. If you Google Joe Fairless and Bill Ham, his previous episode will pop up. Bill is joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. He is the founder and author of Real Estate Raw, where he teaches others how to invest in multifamily. Bill's portfolio consisted of over 1,000 multifamily units and currently owns nothing. Bill, thank you for joining us. And how are you I'm today? I'm doing really well. I appreciate that. <laughs> Doing real good now that I own nothing. Yeah. Doing great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and then we'll focus on Absolutely. why you own nothing? Yeah. So I have been in the multifamily business now for right at 20 years. So this own nothing is just a short cycle in my career. I started off as a corporate pilot by trade, flying airplanes, did the same thing everybody else did, read the books, the big famous ones. And all that stuff, spent about a year studying, closed my very first deal, which was a duplex, walked away from aviation, went into real estate full time with life savings of $10,000 and about 300 bucks a month in cash flow. built a career from the duplex to over that thousand unit portfolio, sold off last year and am enjoying life. Why did you sell everything? Profit. My favorite topic, right? Everybody asks that. Why did you sell? Because I made money doing it. People think typically incorrectly. So we're going to buy multifamily as owner operators and we're just going to hang on to some building into the sunset and we're going to leave it to our grandchildren. And that's really not a very realistic point of view of multifamily. It's a great point of view. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just not typically correct in reality. So buy low, sell high. And I understand market cycles very well. I knew where we were. I have been through this market cycle before. I saw it coming again. So I bought low, sold the top, and now I am consulting and helping other people who might not have been so fortunate as to exit the business. Bill, what were the key tip-offs that told you we were at the top of the cycle? Well, you can't ever know. People ask me that. How do you know when you're at the top cycle? And I always make the joke. Well, you look back and go, oh, there it goes. There's really no way to say we are definitively at the top and to say, yes, I can always guarantee that you'll always know when you're at the top. You can't tell. You can tell when the market is moving away from fundamentals. And that is usually a sign right there that we may be going into more of a speculative market cycle. Speculative, whether that's single family, multifamily, whatever. When people start to purchase no longer based on things like cash flow and normal metrics, and they're purchasing based on pure performa. And I don't mean this to be an anti-landlord point of view because I am landlord, but when your business model is to basically just impoverish your tenant base to make your investment work, 
that's not great business. It's not great stewardship of being in the multifamily space. So I'll make that public message, but saw a lot of that going on, saw people over speculating, overvaluing, and then overburdening the rent and the tenants. It didn't work out. So I saw a lot of that coming. I've been in the business, like I said, very actively for 20 years. So I was just watching a lot of the signpost, reading the tea leaves, looking at the cap rates, looking at the valuations. And then always one thing I tell everybody, watch inflation. It's always about inflation. That's the end of the day, it's inflation, right? Because inflation equals interest rate rise. Very simple. By red flags, do you mean buying properties in the Sun Belt where the interest rate is higher than the cap rate? That is never good. <laughs> I would caution people going forward about buying at a cap rate that is not going to make money, especially when the interest rates exceed cap rate. Yeah, that's a traditional formula that's, uh, it's not the end of the world. I would say there's some yes, but commas in there. And the answer would be, well, how long do I get to hold that property for? If you give me an inverted value and say, but that's okay. You don't have to worry about paying us back for 20 years. Fine. I'll take any deal you got. If I can sit here for 20 years and not have to worry about paying the loan off, no problem. So this is a conversation where we're confusing micro cycle and macro cycle. So macro cycle is where we get these memes of real estate always goes up. You make money when you purchase new things. Yes, over a 20 year period, I agree. Over a two year or a three year period, you better be a little more careful than that. That's where interest rates and things can have a real effect on value and your exit strategy. What if you couple buying that inverted asset with basing future projections on past rent growth? Well, I say that works until it doesn't. <laughs> I would say that that has traditionally worked, but I would say today it's no longer going to work. And I would kind of recommend that you probably don't do that. But I'll give you an example. I'm talking to realtors right now and a realtor will say, Hey, Bill, this is the comparable data for that property. And my response to every realtor that says that is great. Well, that's exactly what I'm not going to pay. What everybody else just paid is exactly what I'm not going to pay. A lot of realtors go, well, wait, wait, wait. They go, right. Because everyone was wrong. Everyone was mostly wrong over the last year, two years. So if you're showing me comparable data, I'm telling you, well, there was the data that was wrong. So there's exactly what I am not going to pay. So whatever you say comp is, I'm taking numbers off of that. And that's what I'm going to pay because I'm paying forward, not backward. And so I'm forward looking and yes, we can use historical data at times when that historical data is stable and the forward market is stable. Yes. Then that data is relevant right now. The forward market is in such rapid shift that I don't think we can look at historical data at least not more than maybe a week or two historically to really project much going forward. My opinion. We have a seller that we're dealing with who said, yes, I understand my prices are high, but they're going to start dropping interest rates next quarter. And we all know how much money you're going to make on that deal. Well, I'll see you next quarter. My offer is now <laughs> contingent upon next quarter. So yeah. I am not in a hurry and I would certainly warn everybody else about being in a hurry. I do believe that there's a lot of opportunity coming and that it's not evident right this second, but that we're going to see some interesting things happen. 20 years in multifamily makes you one of the OGs in this industry. What are you doing to get back in the market? And what are you specifically looking for? Profit. <laughs> Again, there's that word. I have to believe that I'm going to actually make money. So I syndicate, I bring on investment partners for my deals. So the math is very simple. I purchase on math. It's not a feeling or an emotion or anything else. When the math makes sense, we purchase. When it doesn't, we don't. So at the moment, to your point, when you have that sort of cap rate, interest rate, conversion thing going on, along with a lot of lenders not being uh, very interested in lending at the moment, 
It's tough. So I'm looking for a good deal. I know what a good deal is. I have never been out of the business, even, and I'm not out of the business right now. I just know what a good deal is. When I see one, I'll purchase it. I am not seeing a lot of assets that I feel fit that category at the moment, but I believe that's going to change here soon. Maybe not for great reason. Maybe the interest rates go down. I, I think we may see foreclosures and defaults that create some opportunity. Is there a single metric that determines a good deal in your opinion? Yeah, that's easy. A good deal is a deal that makes more money than it costs to own. Pretty straightforward. So what you need to do is you need to look at the deal and you need to say, what is this deal going to cost me in money and brain damage? And that deal needs to produce more money than that's worth. And that's a good deal. That's the metric, ROE, return on effort. <laughs> do you also risk model or stress test these deals? anticipating additional rate hikes, future economic headwinds? Yeah, absolutely. You definitely always need to stress test your deals. I would give you a big, long, boring explanation of how to do it, but you have to read the book for that. But yeah, there are formulas that you need to stress test and, and you've hit that. It's really figuring out three simple things. You need to know your exit strategy, your market cycle, and the, the loan that you're getting. And so that's what I call the three pillars of real estate, market cycle, exit strategy, debt. And if you can understand those three things and line them up, you mitigate a tremendous amount of the risk. So yes, a little more specific to your answer. I would say in the market cycle aspect of your analysis, you're looking forward to say, well, what is my exit going to come do? Am I selling, refinancing, burr? What's the case? When is that exit going to hit? And then where do I think the, the rates and the market may be? Then going to stress test for that exit. Again, without getting too boring into the math, that's the answer. You don't have to back up the next answer with any kind of data, but just gut feel your thought on the next Fed meeting going into 2024, if they increase or decrease initially. Right now, we're in early December of 23. Hold steady. I think the whole rate steady for the next cycle. We'll see. We're looking at the economy and it looks like things are getting a little better. We'll see. I think they're going to kind of hold it steady for a little while. Let things settle in, my opinion. And then based upon the data in the future, they'll make a decision. Do you think there's a possibility of additional rate hikes? I think there is a possibility of small, maybe incremental, but not much. I think that my opinion without, again, getting lost in the sauce here is that unfortunately the Federal Reserve is going to allow a lot of the financial damage to occur in the commercial real estate space. That if they are going to put some sort of sacrificial economic lamb <laughs> On the pyre, it is going to be apartments, well, more of office. They're going to allow office and then perhaps multifamily and hospitality sort of silo the damage in there. So I think they're going to keep the rates up long enough to let a lot of the short-term debt reach its maturity exposure and be dealt through that manner. So I don't think they're going to lower the rates fast enough to resolve the looming debt maturity issue. I think that's a good question. So I don't think it's going to occur there, but I think they'll kind of hold it in there for six. I'm, I'm stress testing everything around six. If you want a, a straight answer, I, I would say exit around six for most things over the next two, three years, just to be safe. Yeah, I fully agree with you. We're stress testing exits at current rates, which for us in non-residential commercials, seven and a half, eight percent. I cringe whenever I hear people, especially it seems like it's just real estate and Wall Street people that anticipate rates coming down. In these financial news publications, 
there's articles where they're predicting the Fed drops rates six times next year. Oh, I was, and I'm thinking like, I, oh my God. Highly like, surprised. Yeah. People need to stop banking on rates dropping. <sighs> Pretend this is the new normal and your deals better work with increased economic headwinds, rent decreases, supply valleys. So yeah, good agree, man. Agree, agree, yeah. The big area that I don't think a lot of people are talking about is, okay, so the rates come down. So what if the lender isn't actually lending? See, and that's the other aspect a lot of people aren't really considering right now, that, that rates can do whatever they want, but a lot of lenders are really having some damage on their balance sheet. And I know credit unions and some smaller lenders that have just a moratorium on lending, period, for the next quarter, 90 days, things of this nature. So yes, there's the conversation of rates, but there's also the conversation of lender appetite for those rates and for those loans. And, and that's something that I think is soft at the moment. And not many people are talking about the toxic assets that are on these lenders' books. You hear about these things from colleagues, other syndicators. Every so often, publications like The Real Deal will come out and expose somebody. But it's one of those things that not many people are talking about. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, agreed. We've got a debt maturity exposure issue in America right now. We've got about $8 billion that's come due this month, last month. And then they say there's about another $4 billion due throughout 2024. So it's turning into this survive 25 hashtag comment now. And everybody's saying you survive 25. It's like, well, yeah, we'll see. Yes, I think the, the toxic assets on the balance sheets of lenders is something that's not being talked about at all. And what's going on is it's causing a lot of these lenders to have a risk tier increase. And so they're having to hold larger capital reserves in, that, in their own escrow to satisfy the FDIC regulations. And so they have to hold that certain amount of cash and reserves. Well, that's money that they're not able to lend, but it is money that they're paying interest on back to wherever they got the money from, their depositors and or if they borrowed it. So that's where these lenders can, if they're not careful, get into that doom loop lack of lending, causing a lack of revenue, causing a lack of lending, so forth and so on until they're in trouble. You often hear the advice when you're in trouble is communicate, 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 communicate with your investors, your partners, your lenders. But it seems like not many people are doing that. And even lenders, I see a lot of them reaching out privately. We've got this deal. All the equity is gone. We'll take it off of our books, give it to you just for the debt. And these deals are not even penciling out. People are not making them lowball offers. They're so far gone that there's no way to save these deals. And for some reason, not many people are talking about that. It hasn't come to light. Yep, absolutely. That's what I say. I think Q2, Q3, 24 is going to be when we start to see a better understanding of what's going on in the market. And then I think this Survive 25 is going to be perhaps a reality. Now we're going to have to kind of make it for a year or two. If you've got some staying power and you can hang in there for a year or two, I think you're going to have a great opportunity and you're really going to come out the other side and do quite well. But there is going to be that little trough period you're going to have to kind of buckle down. I have not heard survive 25, but I have heard survive till 25. So if the survive new hashtag Maybe I'm saying it wrong. There you go. I just heard somebody say No, no. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, don't I, know. I thought See, they just. I'm going to say, no, it's survive 25 because you're going to survive until 26, 27. I'm thinking that you're not going to have to really start surviving till probably mid through 24. So it's going to take high ground 24, survive 25. You'll be doing okay 26, sell in 28. So operate 26, 27 or refi maybe in a good solid 27. You, you get a good one upside refi in 27, 28, hold your asset for another five, sell on the peak of the next cycle like I did. 
And um, that doesn't rhyme, but we'll, we'll come up with something. <laughs> well, okay. So the goalposts have moved because one year ago at the best ever conference, I believe it was Neil Bawa that coined the phrase survive till 25. So now it's evolved into survive 25. I'm saying, I'm then, saying survive 25. Now Neil's a smart okay. fellow, so I'm oh. not, uh, you know, he, and, and I like it a lot, but I'm saying, yeah, it's going to be survive 25, not survive until. Now that being said, there could be a lot of people who have short-term loans that are maturing at the moment. And that may be, I didn't hear Neil's lecture. That may be more of what he was talking about, but yeah, I agree in that comment, which would be survive until 25, if you have loan maturity. And I believe that's what a lot of people were talking about. I imagine he may have been as well, where we do have so much maturity exposure end of 23 and all through 24. So yeah, I would, I would uh, agree with that until comment there. And that was also a year ago. So that could evolve. We've all made predictions. We got to go back in time and see where we were. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you doing anything creative to find deals right now? Are you reaching out to loan servicers, property management companies? Exactly. What I was thinking now going forward, and I'm not doing it today. And if anybody's listening, you can certainly reach out to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But what I would like to do is to put together a buyer's group, closer group of people, and then going into the 24 market, really start reaching out to a lot of these smaller community banks mid-tier lenders that may have had some toxic loans. I'm not looking to buy notes, but to get a group together where we go in and either buy short sale properties or full foreclosures in the mid to smaller range, not the huge properties, but the 20 to 50, 75 unit with good locations. See if we can make a small collection of, of really key located assets that are going to be much newer. So small, new, well-located, pay cash, ride the market up for a year to refinance. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.com thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Would you stick with the geographical area of the Atlanta MSA? Yes and no. I stay in the Southeast now and I have been in Atlanta, but I would look all over the Southeastern seaboard. Probably not go much further out than Texas. More here in the Southeastern section, I will look all in that area. Atlanta was always home, but Atlanta sort of goes through heavy cycles. And at the moment, we're seeing some numbers that are not great in Atlanta, a lot of new construction, a lot of starts, a lot of completions come to market. Absorption rate has just inverted. So our absorption is now less than completion. So that's not super positive and rents we're starting to see soften. So I love Atlanta. I'm not a big fan of owning a lot of stuff anymore of the downtown city of that can be a bit of a tough market, but surrounding metros. Yeah. Love those areas. And I know what I'm looking at, so I'll be looking for discounts in that market. We love Atlanta for non-residential commercial. Like you said, the suburbs, the northern suburbs are on fire. 
but multifamily has had a 5.8% decrease in rent in Atlanta. The pipeline is full. There's a lot coming online. So that could be a great opportunity for you to pick up some great deals. Yeah. As long as you don't catch the falling knife, you've got to figure out where more of the bottom is. And I'm afraid we're just going over the top of that roller coaster ride. It's just now starting to get that sinking feeling in our stomachs and we're not at the bottom. We're picking up momentum. So I'm going to be cautious going forward. Again, real estate, if you can buy for the macro cycle, I think the things that we're talking about become infinitely more muted and infinitely less of a concern. So if you can go in and get an asset and get your 10-year stable debt, hang on to that thing, good location, good loans to a building, the things that we're talking about right now are relatively irrelevant. In the speculative space, buyer beware. Bill, you gave us some great wisdom on how to gauge the top of the market. Is there equally good wisdom on how to gauge the bottom? Yeah. Days on market, watching the attitude, the market, watching lending. It's always about lending. So I would say really, again, it's going to be watching the attitude, watching lending, things of that nature, inflation. That's a tougher one, I think, than spotting the top of the market. You're really just looking for values to start rising on the other side. So I would say my prediction and from our company, don't do any real heavy renovations for the next three years or so. Give it three, four years. And then in the three or four year window, that's where you really want to be buying a lot of value add. And then over that cycle, go ahead and do your heavy lifts if you're in residential. But for the next, say, three, four years, you want to be a little conservative on doing renovations and buy correctly. So bring down the projections, bring down the purchase price, buy on actuals, get yourself a good loan in a good location and you'll be fine. Did you take a massive tax hit when you sold everything? We paid some taxes. We, we paid some taxes. It did not 1031. A lot of people ask that. So like, oh, what'd you do with all the money? Did you 1031? No, we really didn't because that's actually quite difficult. Those were all syndicated deals and they were all individually. They weren't sold all at one time. So I did not sell the entire portfolio in one purchase. So they were sold off individual. So yeah, we did not do 1031s, paid out investors, you know, took our capital. It went forward and now I'm looking to see what's on the horizon. You're breaking the rules. You're supposed to 1031 everything and keep that snowball accumulating. But you're right. You never go broke making a profit. Something else you mentioned in the beginning was not buying and holding. I think just about every real estate investor starts out. Their intention is buy and hold, build this massive portfolio, cash flow. What's the conversation you would have with those people? Several different sort of questions in there. One, this falls into the legacy wealth conversation as well. People say, well, gosh, why would I ever sell an apartment complex? If I buy it and it's making money, aren't I just going to give that to the grandkids and it's going to be forever and ever will be the Rockefellers? Why don't I do that? Well, that's a bit of a naive situation on how multifamily actually works. Number one, these things get old. They're buildings. They're like people. They get old. They start to consume more health care. You got to watch that. So you don't want to sit here and hold on to that asset for many, many, many years. You want to maximize the sale in the up market and you pay attention to your CapEx because that's why I got rid of a lot of the buildings that I did. CapEx. Those things are getting old. So you want to kind of pitch into those cycles and not hold on to them forever and ever. And then you recapitalize when the market rises, but always have a good exit strategy at some point in time for those things. But yeah, people always ask that. I would hold on to them forever and ever. And it doesn't work that way. On the legacy wealth conversation, yeah, you're going to turn your, your grandkids into slumlords. You're going to give them a bunch of really old property that <laughs> did, they, did they want to be landlords? Did you ever ask them? A lot of people get this Rockefeller syndrome going on and they don't really bring it into focus and say, how do I do that? Well, what we need to be discussing here is not leaving assets, but leaving a business, leaving education, leaving a business model 
in legacy, not any one individual asset, because that's a mistake. And I'll tell you right now, if you want to find a good deal, go to probate, go find someone who's inherited that piece of real estate. They will fire sale it for a trip to Hawaii. I'm telling you right now, they will. I've bought a lot of great deals from people that inherited and you think that you're leaving this asset to the family. Nah, you're leaving them a quick sale. You know, they're going to sell it to one of us at a discount and take the money. So you might as well. Yeah, we've all bought those and they can't get rid of them fast enough. They don't care about the terms. They just want the cash right away. And then they're going to fight amongst their siblings. Right. It's a mess. Been there, done yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> Bill, in terms of cash flow versus net worth, mm. what are your thoughts? Okay, well, net worth, meaning like what you're worth and then cash flow or cash flow versus equity in a deal. Which exactly are we asking? So you talk about like the old argument, should I buy for cash flow or should I buy for appreciation? That kind of. You know what? You just formed another question, but let me rephrase mine. So yes, should you buy for appreciation or cash flow? And then two, should your goals be based on passive income or should they be based on growing net worth? Ah, okay. Well, I would say it's probably going to be difficult to grow the passive income without growing the net worth simultaneously. It really kind of almost ties into the other question, and that's why I wasn't quite sure what you're asking. I always tell everybody that cash flow will get you out of a job, but equity will keep you there. And it goes straight dovetail into the question of should I buy for cash flow or should I buy for appreciation? And what I have found is when people ask that question or even really entertain that conversation seriously at all, they don't know what to talk about. They're not anybody that has any real experience in business or real estate. You need to buy for both. If you don't have cash flow, then you've misanalyzed your deal and you've overpaid and you're not likely to survive because you're going to need that cash flow either for distributions, repairs, who knows what. Yes, but if you think appreciation is some sort of joke, some sort of nice to have, you've never tried to actually exit a property in a down cycle, which means it tells me right out the gate, you've only seen the up cycle because I have been in situations. I've had a property go back where I cash flowed straight into a loan that I had to pay off because the value was upside down. So the appreciation equals the exit. The exit equals the profit. So this whole conversation of I buy for cash flow, appreciation is nice to have, or the reverse are both really stupid points. You have to have both sides. You got to have the operational cash flow. You got to have the exit. Saying appreciation is nice to have is saying a successful exit is just nice to have. No, it's everything. I love what you said. I'm going to repeat that. And this should be a t-shirt that you should trademark. Cash flow gets you out of a job. Equity keeps you there. That's brilliant. Thank you. Did you come up with that I on did, the fly? Actually, yeah. <laughs> so you like that? You can have that one. That's yours. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I've said that. That's it. And I think that people get sort of hooked on the concept of cash flow because it's the American dream. You know, I'm going to sit at home and just open the mailbox and rent checks are just going to come spilling out and life will be wonderful. And that's not reality. That's guru nonsense. It's just not real. Yeah. Sitting on the beach in Mexico and just cashing your checks eventually um, maybe someday you don't want to one liner here what i tell people is that passive income is not created from passive investing passive income is not created from passive activity to create passive revenue is very labor intensive until eventually it isn't but in the beginning creating the passive revenue is very labor intensive you could probably get a job and work less for the same amount of money as building a portfolio but then there comes a time when that momentum changes and then that scenario is not true anymore. So it's a lot of effort up front for ultimate revenue, whereas a job would be consistent revenue, but a lot less work. So I think people get that out of line where they think I'm going to show up, do a little bit of work. And that also equals passive revenue. And that is absolutely not true. And for those people who are misguided, 
do they have to have love for the game of commercial real estate or can they just kind of be interested in it and be successful? I don't like multifamily. I don't really like real estate at all. You know, I could care less about multifamily or real estate. I, I would tell people the honest answer. I don't care anything about it. I'm good at it. So what I would tell people, especially young people, and this is a very generalized comment in the world, but follow your competency, not your passion. Too many people in this world are worried about making everything line up. I've got to love my job and be passionate about what I do and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, if those things will work out for you, great. But what I would tell people is just figure out what you're good at, be competent at it, do it. And then you can find something else to be passionate about. You don't always have to love your job and all this kind of stuff. So multifamily, no, I'm good at it. I do it. It's a good business. Some days are better than others. But am I passionate about apartments? No, absolutely not. <laughs> it's just silly to even think that. But I'm good at it. I teach it. Now, I am passionate about teaching. I do enjoy that aspect. And I do consult and have clients. I do enjoy that. But yeah, business, real estate, it's a job. It's something I do. I'm good at it. And I make money doing it. But um, no, I don't think people really need to be passionate about everything in the wide world. Was there a mindset struggle when you decided to sell all your properties? Absolutely not. Not even a split seconds question. No, because I tell everybody, sell with a calculator, not a calendar. And so you got to sit down and figure out what your returns are, when you're going to hit them, not say, well, I'm going to hold it here and sell here for some particular reason. And we hit the returns we were projecting to our investors. That was a successful completion. That was the business we exited. So turn around and do it again. But no, they're product. These apartment complexes are, are simply product. Uh, I was attached to the staff. I'll say that the, the team and the people that I had built, the individual assets, product. Bill, when did you start teaching and what inspired that? I started teaching, gosh, it's been over 12, 13 years ago now. It's been a while. Actually about 2011 probably is when I started teaching, 2010, something like that. It was a way of increasing networking. I didn't know in the beginning that I enjoyed it. I didn't know that I was any good at it. And I started off sort of working for someone else as a coach. And it was just a way of getting greater exposure, networking, and meeting more investors and people like that. And so that's why I got started doing it. And I continue to do it for the same reason. It's great exposure. It's great networking. But these days, I just get paid a lot better for doing it. So there's that little added benefit. <laughs> How come you haven't been on the stage with all the other gurus. We haven't heard your name as we have some of these other coaches. Well, it depends on what stage you're on. I've been on several and I've been with the other group and I have my real, real estate raw now. So what the answer, and I, and I know where you're going, why don't I make a large name for myself? Because I am not interested in working with the, it's not rude, but more of the average client. I don't want to build a gigantic business. I have been in the real estate space or the, the coaching space, either as a student or as a teacher for about 15 years now as a student prior to this. And so I've been around the seminar business for a long time and I've worked with a lot of people in the seminar business and I've always kind of maintained a little behind the scenes. These big companies can be expensive. So it's just not the ambition I've ever had. I like teaching. I like consulting, but I don't like running a big giant company where I'm going to then have to hire on other coaches and people under me and all that. I still work one-on-one -on -one with every person that, uh, that works with me. So small in quality, I guess is why. And I just don't need to, just don't need to do it. Do you have a tier two in our private coaching program beyond that? I only have one program. It's a subscription agreement. It's a monthly program. Sign up. I'm in your corner. I'll, I'll like a consultant and, and that's it. You know, I don't have 
different levels, different products, things like that. It's, it's a one sign up, one and you're done and that's it. I've been teaching a long time. And so I, what I don't do now is to try and charge those big upfront fees, you know, 10, 20, $30,000. Not that anything wrong with that. I just don't do that because this business is not for everybody. And a lot of people wind up spending 10, 20, $30,000 or more to sort of figure out this business isn't for them. And I always feel bad for those people. So I've created a system where I'm just going to be more of a consultant. You can turn it on and off. I'm just a paid consultant. If the program's on, you're paying me. I'm talking to you. If it's not, we're not the end. And that way, if a student realizes this isn't for them or they're not uh, being successful, they can sort of turn it off. Yeah, I admire that. You know, I've heard too many stories of where people paid $30,000, they didn't get what they wanted, and they're told, well, no, you got to go to level two. Right. Another, whatever, $30,000, $50,000, didn't get what they want. You got to go to private coaching, and they're just money grabs. Right. So Absolutely. it's unfortunate that you have to compete in an industry that's gotten tarnished. It has. And I just let my content take care of itself. That's really it. That's why I don't really advertise a lot. I don't do a lot of this stuff. When I'm invited to speak, things like that, then, then I'll come in. But uh, you know, until then. Bill, what is your best real estate investing advice ever in today's climate? Get an education and get started. Don't listen to any of the scary stuff that we might have been talking about. It's always the right time to buy real estate. It's not always the right time to sell it or to refinance it, but it's always the right time to buy it. If you know what a good deal is, there are only three things you need to know. If you're new to business, you're trying to get in, you need deal flow, deal analysis, and networking. So if you're looking to work with someone, that's the only three things that any guru out there ever needs to teach you how to do is bring deals in the door. What are you looking at and how are you going to pay for them? Simple as that. So that's what I tell people. You can do it. I know a lot of people listening are probably thinking, can I get in? Can I do it? That's the biggest mindset issue that we run into is people think, I, I can see how you did it. I can see how Ash did it. I just don't see how I can do it. You can. And that's one of the biggest things. If you're really wondering whether you can reach out to someone like Ash or myself or someone, we'd probably be happy to talk to you. And you really can get in there and do it. So that's probably the one thing I would tell you is, is it's not easy. You're not going to get rich quick. I'm not telling you that. I am telling you that you can do it. So that's what I would probably tell everyone. And you don't have to be passionate about it. And you don't have to be passionate about it. You're going to like it. There you go. You should be competent. <laughs> That's it. Competent, not passionate. Big difference. Bill, thank you so much for this enjoyable conversation. If you would, please share with the best ever listeners how they can get a hold of you, how they can find out more about your program and your book as well. Yeah, absolutely. Please. So the website, super simple, realestateraw.com. You can check out my program. You can get all the information about working with me. If you go to the resources section in there, I've got almost a hundred articles that I've written uh, all in there. It's a tremendous amount of information, realestateraw.com. I have two books now, both on Amazon. You can just put in Bill Ham and it'll pretty much pull up everything there. It's Creative Cash and Real Estate Raw. So the book and the website are the same name. Those are the two books. And then send me an email, bill at gobroadwell.com. That's a B-I-L-L at go. Broadwell, B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. -L. Send me an email. I'm around. Bill, thank you again for being a returning guest on this show. Great to have you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me back. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter 
Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.